I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about what's going on in China and Taiwan and the rest of Asia concerning the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we have with us Dr. Mike Green, who is the head of all Asia programs at CSIS. He is also a senior vice president at CSIS. Mike, you're just back from Taiwan. You were part of a U.S. delegation that the White House sent to help the Taiwanese understand what our position is on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Can you tell us how this came about and, and, and what the result of your mission was? Well, it, thanks, Andrew. It's great to be on. And I am just back in a little jet lag. But the White House put together what they call a no-del, non-official delegation of former officials. And our delegation was led by former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen, Evan Medros, and I. We were both senior directors for Asia in different administrations, Michelle Flournoy, Megan O'Sullivan, bipartisan group, and unofficial, but you know, supported by the administration to hear out how President Tsai Ing-wen and the Taiwanese leadership are viewing the Ukraine thing, and also to reassure them of, of you know, bipartisan American support in Congress, in the expert community, in the public. And we were there for a, a full day, and it was striking when we arrived. It was huge news there. There were people waving American flags and Ukrainian flags. And um, the administration, we thought, was right to send us because the people in Taiwan were looking at Ukraine and thinking that could be us. And the TV news was showing images of Ukrainian you know, city halls being bombed and then showing the same city halls in New Taipei City and saying, what if it's us? So it was a private group, but but a group that knows Taiwan, knows security, knows U.S. policy. And, and, and we, we think we helped to reassure the, the narrative changed while we were there. Opposition politicians who'd been saying the Americans won't be there for you stop saying it. So we think it helped. But uh, it shows you how much this Ukraine incident is a global security problem. It really does, Mike. And, you know, why do you think the people in Taiwan, officials in Taiwan, are so concerned? What were they really worried about? Well, people in the U.S. don't often realize that Taiwan has, under Xi Jinping, Taiwan has been under a constant gray zone or hybrid attack. PLA Air Force is now regularly, almost daily, flying into the Taiwan Air Defense Identification Zone, crossing this line in the Taiwan Strait that for decades throughout the Cold War, the Chinese and the Taiwan side didn't cross. But the Chinese are sending fighters and bombers all the time. They're circumnavigating Taiwan with submarines and and, and surface action groups. They are attacking democracy and Tsai Ing-wen, the president, and trying to undermine confidence in the U.S. and Japan uh, in, um, you know, the kind of social media attacks we associate with the Russians. But they're doing the same thing in Chinese in Taiwan. So they're already under attack. And so in a way, they can visualize the danger of escalation because, you know, although the hybrid warfare in Ukraine involved, you know, firing and artillery and arms, the Chinese, you know, could escalate. I, I personally don't think that China is going to escalate. I don't buy the argument that Xi Jinping is looking at Ukraine and thinking opportunity for me. In fact, if anything, I suspect he's looking at Ukraine and thinking these attacks, invasions are a lot harder than you ever think. And the courage of the Ukrainian people is probably giving the PLA in Beijing some pause. So I don't think attack is imminent, but you can understand why the people on Taiwan would be really, really frightened by this. And, you know, oh, by the way, in Japan as well, and other parts of Asia. And unlike with Ukraine, I mean, we have very specific agreements with Taiwan, correct? 
there's there's a big difference. And one of the things President Tsai is trying to do is walk a tightrope. You know, on the one hand, she's trying to say we're not, and she has said, we're not Ukraine. We don't have a land border with China they can just roll across. Ukraine has no security arrangement with the United States. Taiwan's not a treaty ally like Japan or Australia or Korea with an Article 5 commitment to their defense, but we do have the Taiwan Relations Act since 79, where we've promised to help Taiwan with their defense and also made it very clear in law that a Chinese attack on Taiwan would be a grave threat to our interests. So there's a lot more history and superstructure. And she's trying to make that clear, you know, but she also is trying to have a sense of urgency because for a long time, the Taiwanese military has been buying shiny jet fighters and frigates and things that may not be so useful if China is able to dominate the airspace and if there's an invasion. And so she and the government are also trying to strengthen uh, Taiwan's ability to be a porcupine, to resist. And interestingly, a majority of the Taiwanese people say they'd fight in polls. But um, that's not what they've been thinking. For years, they've been thinking the Americans will protect us and we'll stop them before they can ever get to Taiwan. But that that's less credible now. So she's trying to have both a sense of urgency and increase in defense investments and the right kind of defense investments and get people thinking about civil defense, but without panicking the Taiwanese people, hurting the economy or, or creating unrealistic comparisons to Ukraine because Taiwan is in a more secure position. Well, let's hope your visit with Admiral Mullen and other former officials really help them understand our commitment to them. And hopefully they'll they'll be able to, you know, weather this storm inside Taiwan if there's really if there's real worry. It was very emotional for all of us, really, frankly. If you see the social media on our trip, the presidential office has been handing out, passing out face masks, COVID face masks that have the Ukrainian flag and say, we um, stand with Ukraine. So they were wearing those masks and we were wearing those masks throughout the meeting. And the people on Taiwan have just, you know, maybe more than anyone in Asia felt this incredible outpouring of empathy and support for the Ukrainians and just impressed that this is something the world hasn't seen. We've seen major wars since World War II, but this is, you know, really the first time since World War II that we've seen a free people, a democratic state and a free people fighting for their survival against a totalitarian invader. And it's just transforming how people think about their own lives and their own commitment and their own security. And you see that in Japan, which has, for the most part, been just very strong and forthcoming. Australia, the, the, the response, this is a catalytic moment. And I have to say, um, the administration has generally gotten quite high marks in Asia and in Europe for how it's handled this and how it's formed a coalition to punish Putin. And that's valuable for Taiwan to show the possibilities. If an authoritarian state attacks a free people, the willingness of, of the world's greatest economies to come up together and punish them is, is a powerful thing for Taiwan. And they, they know that. They, they appreciate that from the administration. Mike, this, you know, as a scholar of alliances and grand alliances, this must be just an absolutely incredible time for you as you observe this. What are some of your general thoughts? It's quite amazing. The first thing I'd say is we've seen steady and incremental alignment as China flexed its muscle over the last 10, some would say 20 years. Not only Japan and Korea and Australia moving closer to the U.S., but moving closer to each other, to India, the formation of the Quad, the growing alignment between our NATO allies, the EU, and our allies in Asia, a recognition that we face a, you know, not an Axis pact like 1940 exactly, but a, an alignment of authoritarian nuclear powers 
that requires us to align, to protect our way of life, as George Kennan put it in a C-68, to defend our way, protect our way of life. It's not quite the same. Historians always have to be careful about one-on-one -one comparisons, but for the American public and for FDR, most of all, when the Axis Pact formed, he realized that the problems in Europe and the problems in Asia with Japan were the same problem, that this was a global. And Biden got a lot of heat for this democracy summit. And I was a little bit critical of how they organized it. It was a little clumsy, I think most people would say. But the premise behind it is right. You know, democracies now face a concerted threat. And the nuance and, and subtlety of diplomacy still matters. China and Russia are very close to the line now, but there are, there are differences. And we have to be careful not to make that alignment worse than it would be. You know, we can talk about that. But I think on the whole, Biden's, it's interesting, you know, McCain talked about this. Romney talked about this. The Obama administration poo-pooed this idea. Trump, of course, was not interested in, in democracies. But this is now a centerpiece of American strategy, that democracies around the world have to demonstrate resolve and all for one, one for all. And the, the administration's getting high marks for that, I find. Mike, you know, in China, the reaction has been just sort of overwhelmingly taking Russia's side. I mean, you look at social media in China, it's basically constantly posting and reposting Russia's state media, RT and Sputnik. China even, you know, has really, you know, embraced the entire Russian narrative on this, that this is, you know, this is the United States' fault and, you know, so on. What, what do you make of all this? As you know, Andrew, the Chinese media takes its cues from the propaganda ministry. And, you know, you don't have debate very much, especially under Xi. Um, but at the same time, the Chinese authorities are highly sensitive to netizens, to social media. So, you know, so this is a mostly a top-down social mobilization campaign, information campaign, to amplify Russia's view and criticize the West. But it also does reflect a, a nationalism among the Chinese population and a desire to see the West taken down. Now, Xi Jinping's whole social mobilization campaign against the West created the conditions for that, but he's also trapped by it to some extent. When Xi and Putin had their day-long, their 30th summit just before the Olympics and issued a joint statement after a full day of consultations in which they declared there is no limit to Sino-Russian uh, cooperation, the question is, did Putin tells Xi, I'm going into Ukraine. And we don't know. Experts don't know. I don't know if the U.S. government knows. Personally, I, I'd be surprised if Putin didn't tell him. The relationship between them is close, and their strategic dependence on each other to counter us and our alliances is deep. And Putin would not have surprised Xi Jinping, in my view. He probably told him that the Ukrainian people will welcome him and it'll be a cakewalk, and he'd do it after the Olympics. And now, of course, it wasn't a cakewalk. And there are a lot of stories about the Chinese you know, really worrying about what this means for them. I think that the U.S. academic community and media are picking up alarm from the people they talk to, diplomats, scholars, business, private sector business people. And they are alarmed because this could be devastating for China's relationship with the U.S. and Europe. But I think the indications are Xi Jinping is going to double down in support of Putin. He'll still steer clear of things that would trigger U.S. secondary sanctions against China, for example, uh, with respect to SWIFT and so forth. But I think there will be stories about, as Russians are killing tens of thousands of Ukrainians bombing cities, there will be more and more stories about China's tacit support. And it's going to be devastating for U.S.-China relations, Europe-China relations. And we need to impose a cost on China. And I think increasingly the Japanese, Europeans, Canadians feel the same way. 
And, you know, if we can get the Chinese to think twice about the direction they're heading because of this, it will have been worth it. But so much of this depends on the, the resilience of the Ukrainians. So much of the future of the world depends on what they're doing. You, you know, the president of Ukraine is not wrong about that. That's right. So, so, you know, Mike, I wonder how likely that is. I mean, in China, central Chinese television station, CCTV, you know, has been flashing breaking news alerts, quoting Russia's parliamentary speaker that, you know, Zelensky actually fled Ukraine. And then CCTV created a, a related hashtag on their Twitter platform, Weibo, that was viewed 510 million times and used by 163 media outlets in the country. So it's like, how do you counter a, a narrative like that? So, we, you know, in the United States, this is not unfamiliar to us. I mean, you know, how do you break through to people who only watch Fox or only watch MSNBC? <laughs> sure, right. The difference, of course, is that Americans have a choice. <laughs> yeah. You know, Andrew, knowing the media well, the effect of sort of self validation, constant propaganda, which a lot of our media does now. We have a choice, but a lot of Americans go to what they're comfortable with. And it's effective. And it's profitable. <laughs> yeah, well, for sure. The case of China, they don't have a choice. I mean, the people who are sophisticated know how to get through the great firewall, know how to read CNN, know how to get, you know, CSIS podcasts. And, you know, I meet lots of Chinese scholars and diplomats who would listen to a program like this. The vast majority, of course, are a fed affair, like in Russia, that comes from the government. And they are, um, because Xi Jinping has begun this social mobilization campaign, this Mao Zedong, Maoist-style social mobilization campaign, under the catchphrase, the East is rising, the West is declining. This is a narrative that they've been building for years about our, you know, America's isolated, corrupt, you know, divided, racist, hated, ineffective, democracy is terrible, COVID, you know, showed that and so forth. They're just plugging the Russian media in to continue that narrative. It shows you how much leaders matter. The Xi-Putin relationship is, is very, very solid. And that's what's happening. But, but China's going to pay the price for it. A lot of Chinese, growing numbers of Chinese will realize that. And we, you know, in the democratic world, if you will, have got to use that to try to make China think twice about its own use of force and coercion, about the price of sticking with, you know, aligning with countries like Russia and North Korea and Iran. We, we need to use this moment. There is an argument by some we should back away from the Ukraine issue and focus on the China problem. No, the China problem in many ways is being decided in Ukraine right now, how effective we are at deterring China and shaping Chinese assumptions. Mike, let's talk about the Quad for a minute. The Quad had an emergency meeting just yesterday. What do you make of that and, and what's the outcome? The US, Japan, Australia, India Quad started when I was in the White House with Victor Cha. In fact, it was the tsunami in, in 2004, right after Christmas. And the normally, you know, full NSC was empty on Christmas break. And Victor and I were the entire Asia team. And that's when we stood up a quadrilateral task force, U.S., Japanese, Australian, Indian navies to rescue people across the Indian Ocean. And it planted a seed. And, and, and subsequently, Abe in Japan and others said we should make this a summit. A lot of people who are in the Biden administration now at the time poo-pooed this too neocon, too provocative. It now is one of the it is in many ways the centerpiece of the administration's Asia strategy, and rightly so, because these four maritime democracies offer a counterweight to what China is trying to do. The, 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 the challenge and the interesting part is it was not designed as a counterweight to Russia because India buys most of its military equipment from Russia. 
and has a deep historical relationship with Russia. The fact that Modi joined this emergency quad, which was clearly about what's happening, was a signal, I think, to, to Moscow that India's relationship with Moscow is not a blank check. And, you know, although the Indians abstained in the vote in the UN condemning the attack and Modi has not condemned the attack, that quad meeting was a signal that India, in the long run, is, is with the US and Australia and India. And I, I think the signal, they didn't say this, but the signal is they're not going to just tolerate uh, this kind of thing from Russia forever. That said, they're going to tolerate it in the short term because they can't suddenly replace all their equipment. They can't suddenly give up their strategic autonomy. Japan and Australia have been fantastic. The one thing about Japan is that Japan is still, as the Wall Street Journal reported, buying oil and gas from Sakhalin as they have for many, many decades. But there are signals Japan's going to cut that off too. And the Japanese response has been also unprecedented. Kishida, the prime minister and the Japanese public are outraged, outraged. And they also, like the people in Taiwan, see what this means and have said so for how China looks at use of force in their neighborhood. So except for the oil and gas thing in Sakhalin, they've completely stepped up with NATO. And that's encouraging. And of course, the Australians are furious about this. First of all, the Australians are always in at the pointy end of the spear, as they say it, as they put it. They've been in at the beginning, every crisis we face and have fought in every conflict that we've been in with us. The price is they want to shape the strategy. And so they have quiet, but very influential input into how the U.S. handles these things. But look, many, many Australians were killed when the Russians shot down an airliner you know, whatever that was, eight years ago, 10 years ago. Yeah, it wasn't too long ago. And, you know, you know, it was the Abbott government, but Tony Abbott was talking about sending troops to Europe, Australian troops. So they, they've, they've dealt with the Russians. They've got their number. And the Australians also, on a bipartisan basis, um, the past few years have stood up and really increasing their defense budget, joining AUKUS, the US-Australia-UK alliance, basically. It's not a treaty, but it's an agreement to strengthen our Common defense. Which the Biden administration engineered a few months ago. Yes. And it was it was a bold move. The French didn't like it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but I think this Ukraine invasion and the Chinese response is helping the French get over their peak, get over their anger at that. I would think so. Let's talk about India for a second. India is really complex because you know, they have had a long relationship with Russia, but I would think their relationship with us is more meaningful. But there are considerations because they don't want Russia to prop up Pakistan, of course. So how does India have to deal with this? So it's very, very complicated for Delhi. They see themselves as a developing country. They're trying to focus on economic development. They don't feel that they have the same free hand that we have or the UK has because they're trying to bring a lot of Indians out of poverty and move forward a, a very uh, dynamic country. And they also have a very complicated neighborhood. They, they have to worry about Pakistan and they... The Indian government, the Ministry of External Affairs, still you know, adheres to what they now call strategic autonomy, what some people call non-alignment 2.0. They don't do alliances. That's, that's deep in their strategic culture. And they have Indians who are trying to get out of Ukraine, by the way. And the Russians have let them out because the Russians know how much is at stake in their relationship with India. Um, so it's difficult for them. But all that, and then, of course, the military equipment, which is, which is very significant. They need that because they don't want to be dependent on us. They need some strategic autonomy. All that said, there's basically zero ideological affinity between Moscow and Delhi. And when Indians are polled about the United States, it's overwhelmingly positive. In some polls, when Indians are asked, what's the part of India you're most proud of? The answer is not Bollywood or Gandhi. It's democracy. So this is an ideological 
alignment between us and India that's, we're different, clearly, but growing numbers of people in India completely accept this. The diaspora in the United States is incredibly important to India's connection to us. But it's going to be a very slow process, and the Indians are not going to, we should not expect them to do what Japan or Australia or Britain do. But the trend lines are clear, and clear to the Russians and Chinese. It's tricky. We have to be ambitious with India, but not unrealistic. And the Quad Summit that happened Thursday morning captures all of that in a nutshell. Really fascinating set of circumstances we find ourselves in. Mike, I want to ask you finally, what does the U.S. need to do vis-a-vis China now, considering the events that have occurred? So I think the administration diplomatically has done well. Our uh, non-official delegation to Taiwan was one one small part of it, but but Tony Blinken went to Australia and the South Pacific in the middle of the crisis. The frankly sophistication and skill with which the administration has pulled together alliances around the world to punish Russia is a very powerful signal to to China. You know, in Taiwan, what we heard from people was. We used to think we needed the U.S. Navy. Now we realize how valuable the European economic power is to deter China. And, you know, Europe hasn't committed to that. But having done it with the Russians in Ukraine, that's a powerful signal. So on the diplomatic front, on the economic sanction front, the administration has done very well. There are two areas where they're, they're going to have to do more. One is, and you hear it from every CSIS expert, every expert in Washington, the administration does not have an economic agenda for Asia. And these are countries that are economically dependent on China and the U.S. both, but we don't want the trend lines to be more and more economic interaction with China, less and less with us. And when we pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, we never replaced it. The administration talks about IPEF and Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which is a start, but it's, it's empty. There's nothing in it yet. So that part, they've got to step up. And I know the national security community inside the administration gets this, but the politics of trade in the Democratic Party now, in the Republican Party are complicated. The other piece is deterrence. I suspect the defense budgets will go up a lot in the U.S., you know, especially if Republicans take the House. But they've got to have the discipline to make sure that the Indo-Pacific Command gets what it needs. And, you know, the Pentagon sometimes is like my, my daughter's soccer team. You know, they all run to the ball. And <laughs> we're going to have to have both the resources and the discipline to make sure that U.S. Forces Korea and the Indo-Pacific Command get what they need to maintain deterrence and complicate Chinese or North Korean or Russian planning in the Far East. Because Russian escalation in the Far East is not out of the question as Putin looks at ways to backfoot us. So that's going to require, you know, a lot of congressional oversight, a lot of discipline in the administration. So defense and trade, they still have to step up. But on diplomacy, they've done extremely well. We heard very high marks in the region, and you hear it from Europe, too. Do you think the Chinese, despite their public posture, do you think the Chinese are wary of what Russia's done here? There is a strong feeling that I hear from Chinese experts, even at government-related think tanks and Chinese diplomats and Chinese private citizens who know the outside world, there's a real, and has been for a long time, a real nervousness about hooking their wagon to Vladimir Putin. He's, he's a gambler. He escalates. He, it's, it's not where the Chinese want to take their relationship with the world. That's pretty clear. And you pick that up in U.S. media and stuff. And I suspect in the standing committee of the Politburo around Xi Jinping, there are, there are at least four or five members of the standing committee of the Politburo who are really worried about hooking their wagon to Putin, especially now. I don't think Xi Jinping's going to back off, though. And China is like Russia right now in the sense that there's 
no feedback loop. Criticism doesn't get to the, to the boss. The one reason he and, and Putin get along is when they see a problem, they get a bigger hammer. And I don't expect China to back off on its pressure on Taiwan or Japan or India at all. Or back down from its support of Russia. I don't think they'll back down. They will steer clear of anything that could get them sanctioned. And they will make a lot of noise about diplomacy. And you'll see Wang Yi, the foreign minister, calling the Ukrainian foreign minister and talk about brokering. To my mind, that's a lot of chaff. And she is all in. Now, I'm speculating, of course, because it's so opaque in Zhang Nanghai. But I think there's a strong reason to believe that she has concluded that if, if Putin fails, it'd be like for the U.S. if Britain or Japan failed. You know, geopolitically, he doesn't want to lose that, that balance that he thinks he has with Russia. So, you know, another way to look at it is he's going to be like FDR with Britain in 1939 or 1940 with lend <laughs> doing whatever he can to make sure that Britain doesn't fall. Bad comparison because we're talking about two proud democracies versus two yeah. authoritarian states. <laughs> but my point is he will do what he has to to keep Putin afloat. Well, he has to be thinking, though, too, that as you alluded to before, going against the United States and Europe and our allies around the world, including in the Pacific, is no way to uh, dominate economically in their competition with us. Look, the Chinese economy this year, a lot of economists who know China well are saying they'll be lucky to get 2% growth. Right. And they could get zero for a lot of reasons. The Ukraine crisis is going to you know, suppress the global economy, but COVID is still... Omicron and stuff is still going to vex them, decoupling. So, you know, people who care about Chinese economic growth would not do this, would not support Putin. But Xi Jinping's not an economist. He's a student of Marxism <laughs> and a party man. And Len he's a Leninist. And he and Putin are a lot more simpatico than any Chinese-Russian leaders, gosh, since maybe Mao and Stalin, if not ever. Um, so he's going to make sure Putin doesn't fail. He'll steer clear of things that, that are going to trigger sanctions, but the world will see it, I, I think, at a time when the carnage in Ukraine is getting very bad. And it's just going to it's going to hurt China's economy, China's relationship with the world. And, and we need to make sure any way we can, the Chinese people know that and that they, we impose a cost. And we're, we're doing it not gratuitously and not in a dangerous way. But the, the forces of, of the democratic world are coming together and China doesn't have to be opposed to that. You know, that's China's choice. We're not saying democratize. We're just saying you, you want to be with a part of the world that grows your economy or do you want to be with a part of the world that's willing to burn the world down? Dr. Mike Green, thank you as always for your insights. Really, really helpful. Can't wait to have you back to talk about more of this as it develops. Thanks so much. Thanks, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, the Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 